everyone, you're listening to the Strong Mind Podcast and I'm your host Hazel Finley. In this episode I speak with Tim Emmett. Tim Emmett is a good friend of mine, he's an amazing climber, he's an all-round adventurer really um, and he's pretty famous for climbing stupidly steep ice routes, doing dangerous rock climbing routes. He also is considered a pioneer of deep water soloing and has done some pretty incredible stuff. Deep water soloing. He's also a alpine climber, a mountaineer, and he used to be pretty into base jumping. Tim is one of the few people that I would consider to actually be an adrenaline junkie, although he does kind of contest that label in the conversation, as you'll see. And the first half of the conversation, we focus on risk management and the sort of psychology around some of these risky things that he's doing. We dig quite deep into the risk around base jumping and why he quit base jumping. And we discuss the reasons why he's into doing the sorts of climbs and the sorts of activities that usually have consequences. Like what is it about consequential activities, like activities where there's there's some risk involved? Like why is he so attracted to them? And then in the second half of the conversation, we take a bit of a U-turn and we actually focus on his recent projecting process with a route called Eravea 9A. And so he's just been out in Spain. And if you follow him on Instagram, you will have been pretty connected to his process trying this climb. It's really interesting to talk to a clear adventure athlete who has an extremely strong mind for doing these high risk activities and then see that actually there's a lot of things that he needed to learn and implement and a lot of work around his psychology to manage the psychological and mindset challenges associated with committing yourself to a project for a really long time and also sharing his experiences and the highs of lows of that process through social media. As soon as you start sharing things, and you have to factor in other people's expectations and other people's opinions on how you're doing, it certainly ramps up that psychological challenge. But as you'll see, Tim has got a lot out of sharing his experiences and being honest with people and kind of laying it all out there. And so we really dug into that. It was also interesting to just see the different tools that Tim is using in order to be at his best on that route and it's really cool to hear uh, an athlete talk so much about how they are managing their psychology for not only things that are scary and dangerous but also for a sport climbing project. Tim's an amazing athlete and an amazing person and if you don't know him He's got a larger-than-life personality. He's so full of energy, so full of positivity. And it was really cool to chat to him, uh, not only about these things that he's really excited about, but also these things that he's finding challenging. All right, that's enough from me. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please feel free to become a podcast community member. For $8 a month, 
you can help support us and help keep this podcast ad free you also get bonus episodes to these podcasts a lot of the podcasts have been cut off halfway through and you get the all the full versions of the podcast and any other bonus content that we release you can also become a full strong mind community member if you want more support with mental training access to our coaches and our live events and to just be part of a community of climbers that want to put their minds first Okay, thanks for your time and attention. I really hope you enjoy this episode and have a great rest of your day. All right, hi Tim. <laughs> hey, Hazel, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, how are you? You in Mexico at the moment? I am actually, yeah. Yeah, I've been on a little bit of a whirlwind tour from Spain to Canada and then, yeah, just popped down to Mexico for a little family holiday. So yeah, I'm down down in Puerto Vallarta right now, surrounded by palm trees and swimming pools. It's actually pretty nice. Nice. That's <laughs> not, not good. too bad. Not too yeah. bad for late late November, you know. Yeah, perfect. You're in Turkey, yeah. Yeah. Fully international conversation. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the Wi-Fi and the uh technology holds up. How's your re- your rehab going? You did loads of routes, I saw. You were trying to like on site lots of stuff and yeah. 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 The the shoulder's doing pretty good actually. Yeah. It's getting tired easily, but basically I'm just a bit weak. But apart from that, I can kind of climb as normal. So it's pretty good. Yeah, it's been fun actually. It's like really good in the like sevens and low eights, which is kind of like what yeah. I need. So yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Well yeah. one of the things I no- noticed when I was um in Spain was that if I like I'd have days when I'd be on Aravea. And then I'd have days where I'd go climbing somewhere else and I'd just go climbing for fun. And it was just so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's funny, isn't it? I'm sure we're going to get into this in detail. Yeah. But like, um, you know, there's like trying to send your project and perform. And then there's like climbing for fun. And uh, I just remember walking into Finestra, for example, for a day of climbing where there's no pressure at all. And it was yeah. just like, ah, I feel like being on, on holiday rather than yeah. walking into your project and you're just like trying to focus on not thinking totally. too much yeah <laughs> no we'll we'll get to that I kind of wanted to break the conversation up into two halves actually and like do a bit of like Tim as you and like your history and your career as a climber and get some funny stories out of you <laughs> and then <laughs> and then maybe focus like quite a bit on Aravea because I just think it's quite interesting yeah. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Well, why don't you, you lead off and uh, and then, yeah, we can take it from there. Yeah. So it's really funny because, you know, like normal people who don't climb think of all of climbers as adrenaline junkies. And like, I don't think Maybe. of myself at all as an adrenaline junkie. But like, if you meet a random person on the street, they'll be like, wow, you climb mountains and rocks and stuff. Like you must be like an adrenaline adrenaline junkie. But you're actually someone who I consider to be an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> like out of all, like I actually don't think of climbing. Like most climbers I know, I wouldn't put them in that category. But I put you in that category. Would you put yourself in that category? Well, I, I think that if you look at the definition of an adrenaline junkie and then you think about what I do or have done in my life, I think it's a pretty good fit. You know, I couldn't I couldn't really turn around and say that I'm not. 
you know i mean i could justify the reasons why i don't think i am one but for 99.9 percent of the people that look at what i do they'd probably call me adrenaline junkie so i think i can't you know i can't say no i mean what i can say is this is that the activities that i've done over the years they are the sort of activities or a lot of them where you generally do produce quite a lot of adrenaline um but i think for me rather than trying to do an activity to get that fix as an adrenaline junkie i've really tried to reduce the release of adrenaline in those situations to so that it's more about focus and being in flow and all that sort of stuff you know so i mean in the base jumping world there's definitely some people that i met that are total yahoos and it's all about like Woo! you know what I mean they're like we're gonna do it you know and they're making lots of noise and all that sort of stuff and that's not what I do you know I'm like yeah. pretty chill so you you're know, like I a British got... adrenaline junkie yeah 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 <laughs> just keeping it keeping it on the DL you know <laughs> I don't know if anyone would say that you keep it on the DL but, <laughs> <laughs> but no I like what you said there that like you know, it's it's not about a huge dose of adrenaline. It's about managing the adrenaline. But I guess, mm-hmm. you know, with all the stuff that you've done, obviously there's like some adrenaline involved and you're pretty hyped up and you've got to stay calm, right? Or otherwise mm-hmm. shit's going to hit the fan. What is it that you really like about that process? And out of all the things you've done, kind of ice climbing, climbing, Mountain, mountaineering, alpine climbing, base jumping, wingsuiting. I mean, is there other stuff you do that I don't know about? Freediving now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I think freediving is a brilliant subject to start on because um, it is probably the scariest thing I've ever done, even including base jumping too. I mean, base jumping is really scary, but they're two opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're very similar in, in many ways in the respect that, like, Base jumping is really high adrenaline. It really increases your heart rate and it's very, very quick and fast moving. Things happen incredibly quickly. Whereas with free diving, it's almost like the opposite, but it's also incredibly scary. And it's like you you want to bring your heart rate down as much as possible. And one, one of the challenges that I had with free diving initially was that when I was going to attempt to do a really hard, a really deep dive, my heart rate would go up and because I get adrenaline going into my body and I didn't want that at all. And I was like, oh, damn, I don't want my heart rate to go up. I want it to go down (laughs) and trying to deal with that, you know, like using various techniques to try and keep my adrenaline at bay so that it wasn't being produced so that I could relax, you know. And um, it's been fascinating, actually, on this recent journey with, Aravea and uh, getting into meditating because I've never done that before and I find that going free diving is probably the closest that I've been to meditating in in you know in my life because you're trying to you're basically trying to switch your body and your mind off so that your heart rate goes down so that you can relax as much as possible and the closer you are to being asleep the better you perform 
you know yeah. so um yeah two very very different worlds actually mm. I mean I kind of got lost a little bit in that in, <laughs> yeah. that, in that in that in those worlds then but yeah I mean yeah. what what is it so free diving is quite a new thing for you and I guess a lot of the other things you've been doing have been a bit more fast paced you know what is it that kind of first attracted you to these sort of sports which are mm kind of adrenaline inducing sports yeah sure I'd tell you what it is well there's two things first of all I like to have experiences that I haven't had before I've I really believe that like life is made up of the experiences that you have along the way and I want to fill my life with as many of those experiences as I can but the other thing that I've really noticed especially with sports that are deemed as like adrenaline sports is that there's usually consequence associated with what you're doing and the i find that the 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 greater the consequence the more i have to really focus on what i'm doing and i really like that i enjoy being in that situation you know and it's it's the you know whether you're free soloing or base jumping or free diving or something like that it's really when the consequence is at its greatest that my attention is brought most into the into the moment and I'm incredibly alert and I think that's what it is that I'm striving for in those different sports Mm. when do you think you notice that do you think you've always known that that's actually what you're attracted to or has it taken you a while to actually figure that out no, I, I mean, I, I remember like soloing right wall many, many years ago in on the Cromlick and I definitely noticed it then, you know, because I felt mm. amazing, you know, like when I was on the wall and just about to set up the crux and you're way above the ground and you just feel absolutely in tune with the holes that you're holding on to and each fingertip on each hold. And I think that, that probably brought me into the moment more than anything I'd ever done in my life up until that point. I mean, I can actually remember it very specifically, you know, like setting up for the crux where you where you reach up and make a really long move to the pod. And I distinctly remember like each one of my fingertips on each piece of rock that I was holding onto because I was acutely aware of the fact that if I broke a hold, that I was going to die. So I wanted to make sure that each fingertip was on a piece of rock that was really solid so it, you know I, I I was very specific where I put each one mm-hmm. and then each foothold I wanted to make sure that they were on it was on good rock mm-hmm. and it's a long move you know so mm, you really got to yeah. pull hard on your on your fingers and push with your feet and uh, I just I just think you remember that split second where I had two hands on and both of my feet and I pulled up and then I let go with one arm to then reach up and get the pod and for that split second where I let go with my right hand I was just like wow I really hope that nothing breaks right now because you know I'm pulling pretty hard on these holes and I reached up and I got it and I was like you know and then carried on going so I think that that moment was a, a very um, enlightening moment for me in in my climbing career. And I think that it it gave me a sense of focus and flow, I guess, that I'd never really experienced before. And um, and I definitely noticed that that was something that was 
magical and I really liked it a lot and I wanted more of it. And maybe that's why I then got into like base jumping because I had similar levels of attunement with those activities, you know, which gave me a similar experience. Mm. Yeah. Tell us, tell us more about that, you know, cause I guess people are listening and they're thinking, yeah, I mean, I really like that in climbing when I feel really focused and, and it's intense and I'm like really there in the moment and I'm, I'm in flow. But what do you think is about the needing there to be kind of consequences there? Like why not be into sport climbing and why do you think you needed the kind of the next more consequential thing? Because base jumping has got to be one of the more consequential sports you've done, right? And uh, that are out yeah. that exist. Yeah, totally. It, it is. So just going back to your your question there, why don't I get out of sport climbing? Or, or The thing is, is that I just don't get that experience out of sport climbing. Oh, I hadn't until this trip. <laughs> I mean, it's in a slightly different way. But to try to help people understand about what's going on here is when I go sport climbing, I climb and it's fun and I get to the top and it's great or whatever, or I don't get to the top and I come down. The level of experience is it's just like, you know, it's really similar to other things that I've done. Whereas these specific times, like where I've been, like, for example, when I was soloing right wall or when I jumped off my first cliff and I was base jumping and the experience that I had as I went into the air and then my my view, my sort of field of vision changed from looking out to the mountains in front of me to looking down this wall. And the wall had these, it had like, uh, it's limestone. It had like black and yellow colours on it, which as I changed my angle and I started to see the, the colours on the wall, all of a sudden I started accelerating really, really quickly. And the speed in which these colours started going past me was an experience I'll never forget. And it's like, at the same time, I've got like 11 seconds before I'm going to hit the ground. So you've got all these things that are happening in your mind. And it was such an acute sort of level of awareness that I've never really experienced before because I'm seeing all these different sensations. And But I'm also really aware of the fact that I have to pull my parachute before I hit the ground and I don't want to hit the wall and all these different things. So it brought me into, I guess, a level of awareness, which is just totally different to when you go sport climbing. And uh, it's really intense. And another experience that I suddenly thought about then was when I was on Meshuga, um, that grip route um, of Black Rocks. The first part of it was like when I was putting on my shoes and I was really nervous and kind of excited but scared at the same time because I knew that I was about to go on a journey which was right at my limit and it had very severe consequences if I made a mistake and I didn't really know whether I was going to be able to do it or not because it was that close to my limit physically. Like, I mean, the hardest route I'd ever done was 8A and it's probably like 7C plus and you're soloing. 
you know. Also, so, I don't even think the grade there like really characterizes it, does it? Because it's really insecure, slopey, technical, yeah. powerful climbing, isn't it? It's not just like doing a really secure seven C sport route or something. Yeah. But the other thing, I don't know if you know this, but when I when I the way that I do the the hardest move or the hardest section on that is actually I, I shut my eyes and oh, um no. yeah totally yeah I know because the thing is I had to do I had these three things that I had to do and I found that if I shut my eyes I could really focus on my body because mm-hmm. I think there's we have like I think we have approximately 12 million sensations in our body and 11 million of them roughly are from our eyes so if you shut your eyes, like all of a sudden you've cut off like, you know, 90% of the sensations that your body receives. So it can really allow you to um, focus on other mm. things, you know, not get distracted. So I didn't know this at the time, but this, I mean, going back to when I did Mashuga, I, I remember it was, um, what I had to do was I had to, um, I had my knee in the pocket and cause you do this funny knee move thing. And, um, I had to make sure that I um, pulled down with my left arm, not like this, but I had to then do that move. So it was not just this move, but I then had to do the rotator cuff to really lock it in down here. And then I had to kick with my left foot. I was smearing it on the wall, so I'd just kick as far as I could with that. And then with my knee, I had to push it right over. And I did all these three things with my eyes closed. And then I knew that once I'd done that, I could reach up with my right arm and open my eyes and I'd have the hold. And it totally worked, you know, but um, it was pretty intense, like shutting your eyes and doing all that where you know that if you do fall off, you're going to like end up in hospital big time. So it's it's just, it's really different to sport climbing because Mm. otherwise, I mean, I can't think of specific moments in my sport climbing career where I remember anything about sport climbing really that is so Mm. distinct as these stories that I'm talking to you about right now you know and the common thread is definitely consequence you know the the situations that I've been in that have been the most serious I guess and they're the ones that I remember the most because they put me into this situation that um is so unique yeah that's interesting and have you felt like you've needed the consequences to be upped and upped? Like if we talk about it in terms of risk, when you started your climbing career and, and the other the other sports you've done, you know, would you get experiences that were that intense from certain degree of consequences? And then did you feel like in order to get that same experience, you'd need even more consequences? And I guess I ask because I feel like that often happens in base jumping specifically, doesn't it? Where like it almost becomes boring at a certain level and then it's like you need to keep pushing and pushing it. Whereas maybe with climbing, there's lots of interesting aspects to climbing, right? That aren't just around risk taking. So, yeah. Do you feel like you've had to keep upping up those consequences? And how how has that relationship with risk changed over time for you? Yeah, I think if you we'll separate those two different sports there. There's climbing and then there's base jumping. To answer that with climbing, no. And with base jumping, yes. So base jumping is very similar. Like 
although you do different jumps, when you jump off a cliff, it's um the same thing happens every time, pretty much. You know, you're like you're you're accelerating at the same rate. Um, I mean, you have different heights of base jumps and things like that, and the different landing areas too. So that each jump is different, but the actual process of going into the air is very, very similar. Whereas with climbing, it's not because you've got different rock types, different climbing styles, different locations, different difficulty, and all that sort of stuff. It's much more varied, and then that's one of the reasons why I love climbing so much because you know it's always different. But yeah, with base jumping. That's one of the main reasons why I stopped, actually, because the trajectory of where I was taking the sport was it was going into a much more dangerous and higher risk situation. Because, like, initially when I started base jumping, the idea was just you just jump off the cliff and and then you pull your parachute and land. Whereas what I started doing after I'd been doing it for 10 years was um, I was jumping with a wingsuit, but rather than just jumping with a wingsuit and flying away from the wall, I was jumping off and then turning and flying a- along the wall and like past objects. And, you know, I'd have these, uh, I remember in Yosemite, there were these two trees and I was basically using them as goalposts, you know, so I was like trying to fly right in between these two trees. And I was, I mean, acutely aware of the fact that although it was really fun, way more dangerous than what I'd been doing before. But that's what I wanted to do because it was it was just more exciting, and you get got a um, a greater sensation of speed. Like when you fly close to something, you really feel like you're going fast, you know. And it's just way more interesting than flying out into space, you know, where you haven't got anything nearby. So. Yeah, base jumping was definitely going in one direction, and that's why I quit because I I just knew that it was a matter of time for me. Really, it was like a statistics thing, you know. And I knew yeah. I could do it a lot, and I was like, you know what? That, I just don't like that. I don't like the I don't like that where that's going, you know. And it was catching up with a lot of my buddies, and it was just I could see it as a one way ticket, really. So yeah, yeah, <clears throat> it seems like that's a common story amongst um, base jumpers. I think it was you actually who told me that you was it you who told me that you you were ke- you kept going to base jumpers funerals and seeing the mm-hmm. same people and you'd be like oh yeah mm-hmm. the last time I saw you was at mm-hmm. someone else's funeral and yeah that's when you kind of know that the odds really aren't stacked against you mm-hmm. or they are stacked against you how long ago now did you quit base jumping well it's just before Rocco was born he's nine now so yeah nearly 10 years I do think about it a lot, though. Yeah, I was going to say, do you miss it? <laughs> I do miss it, yeah. I went to, um, I was in Canmore recently, and it's funny, you know, every time I drive from Calgary into Canmore, I look at these huge Canadian rocky cliffs, you know, and I just all I think about is, oh, my God, you could fly down that line there. That'd be so cool. And it that hasn't changed at all in the last 10 years, you know. So, right, yeah. yeah, I still think about it. Yeah, it's, it is interesting, actually. I mean, I, I'll still go skydiving and go wingsuit flying around clouds and things like that, or I'll jump out of a helicopter. Okay. I mean, I haven't done that recently, actually, but um, that's mainly because I haven't really had the opportunity to. But, uh, yeah, it's just that the living in Squamish and being able to base jump every day, I thought, was just not the best idea, really, for me. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm glad you made that decision as your friend. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are, actually. 
Yeah, probably yeah. your your wife and your son. Yeah, probably well, yeah and lo- lots of friends. Lots of friends yeah. have said they're really glad that I stopped doing it. And yeah. they think it's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Right, um, yeah. I mean, I remember when I when I <laughs> when I announced publicly on Facebook many, many years ago that I was stopping base jumping, that it was lots of people sent me messages going, Oh, thank God for that. You know, we're so glad to hear it, you know. So yeah. Could you describe your closest call in either base jumping or climbing or anything or yeah, what's mm. what's been the, the closest? Mm. Well, I can think of quite a lot of base jumping situations, but I can't think of any climbing ones. Oh no, I can't think of a climbing one actually. But the first climbing, the the climbing one that comes to mind is when I was climbing with Sue Knott and we were in Chamonix and uh we'd just done this route called Beyond Good and Evil, which is an amazing mixed climb. Really cool, actually. When it was first put up, it was supposed to be like the hardest alpine climb in the Alps, but then I think one year the conditions were really good and lots of people did it. And that's when I did it with Sue. And we had climbed up to the top and we'd finished about 11 o'clock at night. We were abseiling down and it took us about three hours, I think, to abseil down the route. And we were just about to go into the this gully. Um, but I couldn't find anything to fix an anchor to, to put the rope into. Um, I was on a really steep slow slope like this. And this serac broke off like way hundreds of feet above me and I could see it coming down the side of the mountain towards me and I was like oh my god I'm about to get hit by an avalanche like this is this is this is it you know and Sue was a rope length above me and uh, I could just see this like cloud of snow and ice and whatever it was coming down and it kind of exploded and then you you know where you see um when you see films of someone putting a camera in front of an avalanche and the avalanche comes towards the camera, that's what I saw. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is this is it, you know? And um, I'd gone off the rope because I was trying to find a place to fix the rope to. And I managed to get back to the rope and I wrapped the rope around my arm about four times and then got engulfed by this cloud of snow and ice. And I was just like... <laughs> hunkered down in the snow and all these like ice crystals were like making such a loud noise in my helmet and I was there just waiting to get hit by something and then blasted off the mountain and it didn't happen and then after a while it just dissipated and I was still there like covered in all this snow and ice and I think the the I mean luckily I was about 100 feet above the gully that I was about to go into and all the debris must have gone down into that and miss me and yes that was uh pretty spicy and sue sue was screaming she thought i died and wow. you know she i mean she got covered in it and she was 200 feet above me so and that was that was actually my first alpine climbing experience oh wow so uh, it was definitely a, like wow this is pretty full-on like if you yeah like my first alpine climbing experience i nearly died and then my first base jump off a wall actually that day Dwayne, who was our, he was like the most experienced base jumper. He actually died that day. Um, Your first day base jumping off a wall, someone died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy that was in our group, he um, he did his first wingsuit jump, and he he just pulled too late, and um, he his canopy didn't pressurize before he hit the ground, 
And we went and saw him and it was really full on, actually. Yeah, wow. it was really full on. And he was there with his girlfriend oh, and wow. um yeah, she was hysterical. And it was it was just like, oh my God, what what are we getting ourselves into? I remember Rocco and I I mean not Rocco, um Leo and I were um yeah, really, really shaken up big time. We were like, well, what are we going to do? I mean, are we going to get into this sport or are we going to say, like, that's it, we're not going to do it? But it, I mean, witnessing that experience definitely saved my life. Like, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't seen that because what it made me do was it made me really respect making good decisions in that sport rather and and walking down when conditions weren't right and you know being really sure about saying no and not not jumping in 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 iffy conditions so i don't think i'd be here right now if i hadn't seen that happen on that day um so yeah well what after you see something like that and you know that's probably not the last fatality you would have known about right as a base jumper and i imagine you would have had friend other friends die of all these people you know like what are the conversations going on amongst base jumpers around how to justify it especially to kind of mm. friends and family mm. who maybe don't understand what you love about it so much and related to that I guess is you know how you've thought about the risk of it change since you know having a family well, it's interesting actually, because for me it was very black and white. Now, I all of the time, like for the whole of my base jumping career, I always believed for myself that if I researched as or, you know, I basically read up about every single fatality that ever happened and learned why that happened. And I was like, okay, well, if I make good decisions and I do all my homework and make sure that I do everything correctly, then I'm going to be okay. And I genuinely believed that I was always in control of my outcome with regards to base jumping. And right. I was a hundred percent sure that I was going to be okay on every single jump that I did because the decisions that I made in that moment were the right decisions and if they weren't the right right decisions if there was something that wasn't right I wouldn't do it and I've walked away from loads and loads of jumps where other people were jumping I'd just be like I'm not going to do that and was so it hard me, to walk away in, in those no, moments no no not at all because I'd seen what had happened to Dwayne you see and it was like look you can either jump off here and end up in hospital and be in a hospital bed for months you know or or worse or you can just turn around and walk away right now and it was it was actually pretty easy right. it was it was either it was either right or it wasn't you know it was very binary um and but, there was no but how did that work though because obviously like a lot of people who are now hurt or dead probably also thought like that right well, or did, I don't you, know. did you think I don't you were know. different? Because I guess that you have to think that you're different, don't you? Or otherwise you can't just. I guess it. so. I guess <laughs> so. Yeah, I suppose so. But but for me, I felt really sure about my decision making. And I felt that I could confidently say to Katie or my mum or my dad or whatever and say, well, 
if I make good decisions, I'm going to be okay. Because I, I did know that my chances or the statistics for me of passing away or like losing my life to base jumping, like the statistics when I started were um, I had a 20% chance of dying in my base jumping career, which is actually pretty low, you know. Um, I mean, I was taught, well, I mean, it, well, it is. No, well, it actually, it's really it, <laughs> It turned it's not out at all. A, That's like turned, saying, you know, if you've got um, you know, five <laughs> g- bull- barrels and a gun and you put in one bullet and someone just points it to your head, you know, that's a, that's a well, one it, in five it, chance. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I understand what you're saying and I totally agree with you in some ways. However, I don't agree with you because um, you have decision making that comes into that too. Yes, yeah, so you were hoping now, to bring those odds down. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> by making so. good, like by making good <laughs> decisions. But, um, but I mean, it actually turned out that the odds were much greater than that. So the people that I knew in my base jumping career that I jumped with the most, it ended up being about 50-50. No way. So basically, yeah. the people who were pushing it and made it a career, it was 50-50. Not all of them, but the people that I was jumping with. Yeah, the people that I knew. half of them are dead. Yeah. Half of them stopped jumping and half of them are dead. Yeah. Seriously? Then there's no one still jumping? Uh, Not. There are some people who that we met along the way that were really good at base jumping and they're still doing it. And And they're still, you know, they're still alive, you know. So... For example, people like James Bull and Robbie Pecknick and those, they were right at the forefront of, of wingsuit base jumping. And like, so for example, Robbie Pecknick, he um, runs a company called Phoenix Fly and they make wingsuits. And he was like, he's like the, the godfather of wingsuiting, basically. Um, right. So the people that really specialize in it and do it all the time. There's still a lot of them that are still alive, but just out of the people that I was jumping with, like, for example, Dean and Sean um, and my friend Gus and another guy called Sean. And, yeah, all of our crew, basically, they they either all of them died or they all stopped. So, wow. yeah, out of our team, there's, that's how it, how it worked out. Wow. Yeah. I was interested so, when you said... Um you know, you found it really easy to walk away, you know, when you weren't 100% sure that it was safe to jump. You know, what are the sort of things that might cloud that decision-making? I guess, obviously, there's, you know, you really want to, you really want to jump because it's fun and that's what you love to do. But I'm also wondering, you know, how much ego plays a role there, right? Like if everyone's jumping and Mm. they're saying, um, it's safe what you're doing you know how much yeah. bravado and stuff is you, there and, and does yeah. that cloud people's judgments do you, do you know what Hazel like for me not at all it wasn't like that you know like mm. in the base jumping world you never like goad someone into jumping it just that's yeah. not the way it works you know it's like there's way too much consequence for making bad yeah. decisions like and you really respect people for making whatever decision they want and then for example I remember like when I went to Norway once 
Um, I spent two hours walking into this jump and there were people that were jumping. It was windy. And I was like, no, I'm not into that. And I turned around and I walked for two hours to get back to the car. So that's four hours without jumping. And then I walked for another three hours on the same day to the top patrol wall. And I poked my head over the top and it was too windy there. And I was just like, I'm not jumping. And then I walked for another three hours. So I walked for 10 hours that day and I didn't jump at all. And other people were jumping. So it was, you know, that's going back to um, going back to when Dwayne died. It made decision making really black and white for me. You know, it was like, it's either good or it's not. You know, it's not, there's no, if there's any doubt, it's not good. And therefore you don't do it. Right. You know, so from an ego perspective, the ego didn't come into it at all, really. Right. Um, because, um, and and I really, I really genuinely thought that if I made good decisions, that I'd be okay. And the one day that that changed was the day that I stopped. Right. Wait. You know, what do because you mean? I, well, the the day that I realised that I wasn't in control of whether I would survive or not was the day that I stopped. And what caused you to realise that you weren't in control, and what and what had changed for that realisation um, to take place? I cr- well, I um, I crashed, and I was I was wingsuiting in uh, the the vampire spies, and I jumped off, and I was flying, and that was great. And then I turned and I pulled my parachute, and as my parachute opened, I started to get four line twists around. So I ended up flying backwards into a boulder field that um, I couldn't see because I was facing the wrong way. And I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't turn around. I couldn't get out of the line twist. And I knew I was. I had about 10 seconds before I was going to land, but I couldn't control where I was going and I couldn't see where I was going. And I was 100% at the mercy of, of what was going to happen. You know, I, it wasn't. I had no control over it at all. And i that's what made me realise that actually I wasn't 100% in control of my destiny. And I got away with it, but I was, I just didn't like the fact that I wasn't in control. And I realised that that might happen again. And as soon as I realised that, I was like, well, I'm out. I don't want to do this. I don't, I just don't, I don't want to be, exposed to the fact that I'm not actually in control of what I'm doing because then when you're standing on the exit point and you're about to go knowing that something might happen that you're not in control of you you could be like well this could be my last jump and like being a parent and also being a um you know turned around to Katie my wife and saying okay hon I'm gonna go jumping now knowing that there is a chance that I might not come back I just couldn't justify that at all and that's why I stopped. Yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting because it's interesting to me that, that you ever thought that, you, that like there wasn't random error in there, that mm-hmm. you were completely con- in control. Because I feel like maybe that's why I'm like not as into soloing. You know, I, ob- I obviously yeah. do sometimes free solo, but I don't really feel like I'm 100% in control. Like, I do think that there's some random error. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, and, and for me, I, do, I don't know a lot about base jumping, but it seems like there's more random error in base jumping than in climbing. Would I mean, you say, for would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, maybe. Um, I guess it depends on things with climbing. You got rock, haven't you? Like the whole breaking is the random error. And I think with with base jumping, I mean, of course there is random error, you know. But I think when I was doing it, I was trying trying to ignore that, you know. And because <laughs> the thing is, if you think about that, then it exposes you to the possibility that something might happen that you don't know about. And I think I didn't want to have. I didn't want to be thinking about that, you know, so it, I was sort of forcing myself to believe that that didn't exist. Um, and then that would help me to really focus on what I needed to do. So I, I guess I subconsciously chose to ignore that. And so that that wasn't actually in the equation, even though maybe as a more experienced person now, I think as you get older, you become more aware of things like that. But as a, a young base jumper, I really didn't. That wasn't part of the the plan you know and that helped me to be really confident with the decision making that I was doing because I I genuinely yeah well as I said before I thought if I made really good decisions I could do it in a relatively safe way you know yeah it's it's like looking back now it's like (laughs) you were smart you were pretty smart but also not smart (laughs) exactly I know you're smart enough to walk away when things weren't in your favor but you also were like turning a blind eye to some of the uncontrollables I guess right it's like you were controlling Mm -hmm. everything you could control but the things that you couldn't control you weren't actually respecting I suppose would you say that yeah yeah I think so but then you don't really know do you you don't really know what those things are because you don't know what they are (laughs) yeah so why so why put your attention on them I guess that you know but I suppose you still want to be able to have that conversation in your mind and say look okay there's these things that I can control I'm going to work really hard to control them there's these things that I can't control I respect them I understand they're there but I'm still willing to take the risk and that's how I feel about climbing in general right like you know, the trad climbing that I do, the alpine climbing that I do, there are some things, a bit like that Serac falling on you, right? There's some yeah. things that, like, you can't control. Like, even just going up to the sport crack, someone could just knock off a two for one day and it could crush you. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, there's uh, even in just yeah. normal life, there's going to be risks. So I guess you yeah. can kind of justify it that way. But with the people, with the fatalities that you know about, were those people making mistakes and they weren't controlling the controllables or were that was there random error with some of them as well well i can't i can't really answer that because i don't know because it wasn't me you know i mean okay. i can i can talk about the information that we know about but then you don't really know what happened i mean you've got a good idea You've got a theory, you know, but you don't 100% know what really, really happened. But usually, and I'd say 90, you know, at least 90% of the time, it's human error. Would you? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, for example, when I crashed, I know that the pack job that I had, like the way that I packed my parachute, it was one of the worst pack jobs I'd ever done. I was aware of that. Right, um, well. and that's probably why it happened so right. if I was thinking about it rationally if I had done a better pack job it probably wouldn't have happened but at the time when I was packing my parachute it was in a really tricky environment where 
the lines kept getting caught on the those tiny little bits of gorse <clears throat> on the ground. Mm. And in hindsight, I should have had a packing mat. I didn't have one um, because we were packing on this grass, but there were lots of these tiny little bushes that kept snagging on the lines. And, mm. and also there were loads of mosquitoes. We were packing the parachute with a mosquito head net on. And we wanted to, we just, I mean, it takes you about an hour to pack a parachute. I mean, you can do it faster than that, but um, it used to take me about that long. And we were just getting hassled by all these mosquitoes for 60 minutes. And it was like, oh, I really want to finish this, you know, so that we can get away from them. And uh, the com- combination of the mosquitoes with the, like the 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 lines getting caught on what we were packing or what I was packing ended up meaning that my it just wasn't a very good pack job yeah. you know so that was my fault you know for mm. sure it's um, interesting you interpreted it as random error though because it means that maybe you were like ready to give up do you know what I mean like what had you what do you think if you'd been younger and more psyched on base jumping maybe you would have interpreted that as your mistake that you wouldn't make again next time or would mm-hmm. did you interpret it as I'm a fallible human I will make mistakes again in the future therefore this is too risky mm. it made me realize that there are things that can happen that I'm not in control of and you're I didn't just like saying that. you were in control of it though well, I, I pr- see what um, I mean because you said that if you packed it better, it wouldn't have happened. Well, it probably wouldn't have happened, right? Yeah. yeah. But then there's other aspects as well. I mean, we, we hadn't slept either, so you know, literally woke up and jumped off a cliff, or we got got up and jumped off a cliff. You know, so I was. Um, it may have been something that I did as well when I was flying. Yeah, but I, I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 Anyway, maybe we'll we'll um escape from base jumping and um we'll get to Erevea, but just before we do that, I mean you're like about as diverse a climber as you could get in terms of like the different types of climbing that you do, right? You do, you know. And but you also do other sports too. How have you managed to sort of balance those sports out and how much do you get out of like different experiences because it's you know you've just done so much different stuff it'd be interesting to hear what you think about sort of diversity and all of it well I think from a climbing perspective I I move with seasons you know so unlike rock climbers who tend to go to Spain or Turkey or somewhere like that in the winter when the when the weather's not very good in the UK um as soon as it it gets really cold. I get my crampons and ice axes out and things like that. And I had looked for colder climates. So, and also with regards to like alpine climbing or mountaineering too, you know, it's very seasonal, you know, so when the seasons are good for that, that tends to be when I do those sorts of activities. So I, I've moved around a lot with that in the different climbing styles. And I really enjoy the variety of it. And also like, training and, and or focusing on a specific type of climbing with a specific objective I really enjoy that about climbing because it makes it it's always interesting you know you don't get bored or you know or for example because you're doing the same sort of thing but then with regards to other sports yeah that's an interesting one I mean I really got into free diving when I was injured 
from climbing. Mm. It's when I took a year out of climbing. So it was a brilliant option for me because living in Squamish, I, I'm right next to the sea. Mm. And I teamed up with a friend of mine who was a freediving instructor. And it was a, a way of being able to do something that was um, that I really enjoyed and I could focus on and I could learn. And it gave me that 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 ability to get into flow which mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do through climbing because I wasn't climbing. So mm-hmm. freediving was a brilliant option um, mm-hmm. at that time, and it fitted really well into my uh, into my my lifestyle. And then the other sports, things like skiing and snowboarding and mountain biking, again, they really fit in from a seasonal perspective, you know, like when you can't really go climbing and surfing too, for example. You know, I remember I started surfing at university when – um weather got really shit <laughs> and you couldn't yeah. go climbing outside and there weren't really any climbing walls to go to but and then these storms would come through and you'd be like great there's going to be some waves let's go surfing and then going mountain biking in Squamish you basically do it when the weather's really bad mm. and you can't go climbing outside and mountain biking is really good for training your legs if you want to go into mm. the mountains so I'll be yeah. doing that as a sort of a training tool but it's also really fun as well and again, it, it gets you into flow because that's the, the, the thing with when I stopped base jumping, I really missed that ability to get into flow because base jumping has got speed and consequence and it brings you into this, this really fine tuned environment where for 60 seconds or 30 seconds or however long the jump is, you get into flow and it's amazing. And when I stopped base jumping, I didn't wasn't able to do that anymore and I thought well hang on a minute what about mountain biking because mountain biking has got speed it's got consequence it also it has the ability to get you into a state of flow because of that do you not get into flow as easily then with slower sports like climbing do you feel like you're not in flow climbing or yeah that's true actually because there isn't the element of speed I think that with with wingsuit flying and mountain biking, because things are happening very, very quickly and you have to navigate your decision-making in a finite amount of time, that I get into flow more easily than I do when I'm in Mm. climbing. Like I don't get into flow climbing as often as I do as Mm. when I'm in a speed-orientated activity. So I find that, that, and that's one of the reasons why I got into mountain biking because the consequences of making a mistake, you know, maybe you're going to break your arm or something like that, but you're not going to die. And I, for me, that was much more acceptable um, as a parent and um, an athlete than like going wingsuit flying, you see. So, yeah. That's interesting that you don't get into flow as much in climbing because it's not a fast sport. I think the reason for that, or like this is my theory anyway, is like because your thinking mind can come online in climbing because it's slow. So, you know, like if you get to a rest. But I, I, what I like about that, though, is the challenge of being in flow, basically like learning how to turn that switch, thinking mind off. And I wonder if you found that with freediving, because I imagine freediving, like that thinking mind can come online because, because mm-hmm. it's not happening at pace. And mm-hmm. I wondered if you have any you learn any tools in any of the different sports you've done to be more present and access flow more easily? Yeah, well, you know, that's really interesting, actually, because um, 
all of the deepest dives that I've done free diving, I've done with my eyes shut. And I think it's interesting how um, in order to for me to focus on what I need to focus on with my body, with free diving, I close my eyes. If I go back to that time when I was on Meshuga and I did the same thing, you know, on the crux, I shut my eyes as well so I could really focus on my body to make sure that my body was doing all the things I needed to. And yeah, with freediving, it, it works really well, actually, to shut your eyes, because then you can concentrate on what I'm doing with my mouth to be able to equalize, like my mouth and my nasal cavity and my tongue. Because with freediving, the, the one thing that's going to stop you going deeper is the inability to equalize. So what yeah. happens is as you get down to sort of 30... 25 30 35 meters is you've got you you don't have enough air in your nasal cavity in your in your mouth to be able to equalize anymore so there's little things that you can do to be able to um, equalize maybe one or two two more times and that allows you to keep going and if you can't equalize you have to stop because otherwise you're going to burst your eardrum so that the equalize the ability to equalize is what determines how deep you can go but also you know staying calm as well like because you you do have your what's funny is you can't do breathing exercises (laughs) underwater (laughs) you know like most most of the sort of ways to calm yourself in climbing or lots of other sports is by controlling the breath right deep slow breathing and uh, obviously you can't do that free diving we actually had a free diver on the podcast I don't know if you've listened to it but um this guy called Miguel Lothano he was chatting to us about it and it was funny what you were saying about how obviously you've got to you have you've got to have no adrenaline in the body before you go down because your heart rate's got to be like below resting or whatever right Mm -hmm. and he describes it as being like um being like a jellyfish in the water like mm. just totally floppy and yeah. that's just like the opposite of other sports isn't it like yeah. other sports you kind of need to be somewhat switched on so it's it's such yeah. an interesting sport freediving I want to try it yeah yeah I think you'd, you'd be really good at it actually I'm yeah. not great in the water I have to say my ears always get blocked and things like that so I yeah. don't know but yeah you were talking about <laughs> you were talking about that with deep water soloing it I remember you yeah. saying that, that you find that when you jump in it jump into the water it, it hurts your ears yeah, yeah. weird but yeah, I mean, flow has come up a lot for you. I mean, do you think that it seems to be the common thread, right? That's That seems to be sort of what you're looking for in all these activities. Do you, do you find it in other things in your life where there aren't consequences? Or for you, it's like there has to be consequences? Yeah, no, I do actually. Like, So I, I found it when um, I was doing some like Wim Hof breathing. Gilly told me about this technique that I first started trying when I was in Spain, trying to climb Aravea in 2019. And it's quite an advanced breather, this. And I definitely, I don't know whether I, I wouldn't recommend it um, if you haven't done it before. But then, I mean, it's obviously up to yourself, up to anyone listening to this, whether they try it or not. But what I was doing was lying down on a bed and I'd breathe rapidly for two minutes like so you like might hyperventilating that. yeah I, hyperventilate for two minutes yeah so I do that for two minutes and it made me really lightheaded actually and then at, 
after two minutes, I'd exhale, breathe out completely, and then hold my breath for as long as I could. And that would vary for between two and three minutes. I'd breath hold for, for that long. And then I'd repeat that five times. So I'd do five cycles. That's really of- like Wim Hof though, right? This is the same as Wim Hof, or is it more rapid, the breathing that you're doing before? No, it's, the- it's the same as Wim Hof, oh, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, I've done this before, but I think, yeah. But I'm doing it for two minutes. So he, I think he says, like, do it for 20 breaths or or whatever. But this is like, yeah, you basically do it for two minutes, and then you breathe out and hold breath for as long as you can. And the first time I did this, I I think I must have passed out on, like, the fourth or fifth cycle. But I had this really interesting reaction where my whole body started trembling and shaking. Like my legs were visibly vibrating. And I had this, and and like nearly every time that I've done it since, apart from two times actually, on the last cycle when I relax and, and breathe normally, I get this sound this noise comes to me and it gets louder and louder and louder. It's almost like a ringing. I can hear something in my ears, which gets the volume increases and increases and increases. And it gets to a point where it doesn't get any louder. And then it slowly dissipates and goes away. And after that, I feel completely relaxed and like I've had a it's almost like having a reset and I have to lie there and just relax a little bit and then um, after a few moments I then sort of open my eyes and then I maybe I'll get off the bed and stand up and it's the only way that I've got into that state of complete relaxation and it's it's really interesting actually have you ever had that before do you, do, no, do you I've, find I've that done that well, I or? mean I've, uh, it has made me feel like it's definitely been an intense experience I've never had this trembling that you've talked about yeah it only happened that. to me on that only happened on the first time I did it it hasn't happened okay. since right yeah. yeah but no it is quite intense like I think of breathing, often I'm using breathing to calm myself down, but mm-hmm. it's definitely an intense breathing experience, the Wim Hof. Cause I've got, yeah. a, I use the app, um, this yeah. little Wim Hof yeah. app, yeah. I think I was doing it when I was training for a, a sport climbing project. And I'm not sure why, maybe for recovery or something. I can't remember all mm-hmm. the different benefits of this breathing technique now, but it's definitely something look into i was also getting into my cold water swimming a bit as well um, yeah yeah I and it's supposed that. to be good to help you with that but yeah maybe but I, you've inspired me to try it again now <laughs> <laughs> i i found that um going to well moving towards Aravea, like i found that psychologically if i did this during the day before i went climbing it really helped to sort of reset my brain so that right, if I yeah. was a bit nervous or thinking about things or I had a lot of um, self-talk going on, if I did this breathe up for 20, what, well, it's about 20, 25 minutes, I found that it was a really effective way of stopping any of the self-talk and just like relax, relaxing my mind and giving me like a, I mean, I, I call it like a reset. 
I feel yeah. like it's a you know a reset for my brain. Well, let's let's talk about Ayurveda. First of all, just like tell us like the journey, like give us a brief overview of the journey so far. I know that might be hard to do, but sort of yeah, like no, what I'm... what prompted you to sort of try it in the first place, and then also talk about the the sort of the inspiration to share so much of it, right? Because that's a yeah. bit of a big piece of the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did a an AC plus in Squamish called Superman, and when I got to the top, I wasn't that tired, and I thought, you know what, I could do something harder than that. So um, I was doing a deep water soloing. I was emceeing at a deep water soloing um, festival with Sharma in Utah in Park City. And I turned around to Chris and I was like, hey, Chris, I think you're a pretty good person to ask here. Like, can you think of a 9A, which is really long, really steep, and it's on pockets and it doesn't have any hard moves? And he's like, yeah, Aravea. And I was like, cool. <laughs> Okay. Why so, did you describe that route? Because it was just what would suit you, sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Yeah. That was those were the, all the things that I felt like I was the best at. So <laughs> if I was going to climb a nine A, then you know those are that's what I do. So yeah. So went on a trip there with uh, Katie and Rocco. Uh, Rocco was four, and Katie, my wife. That was in 2017, and um, I tried it, and it was really hard. I'd been training endurance. But the first kind of 20 moves of the steep section of climbing is actually quite tricky. And I wasn't strong enough to be able to do that. So it didn't really matter about the fact that I had loads of endurance because I couldn't do the hard climbing to get to the endurance. So that was in 2017. And then I went back in 2018. I went back in 2019. And I got really close in 2019, actually. I got past the last bolt. And that's when I realized that I could do it. I thought, wow, I'm actually really, because it's only about 7A or something from where I was to the top. And I was pumped out my mind and my foot slipped and it came off. And I, as soon as your foot comes off in situations like this, you use all your power. And I was out of beans. But I really, I was like, well, if I can get that far, I know I can do it. So I wanted to go back. And then this year, I went back and I spent two months. Well, not quite actually, because I went to the UK for a little bit. Um I spent 10 days on it. On my third day, I actually got up to the 17th bolt, which is like two bolts below the top. And I felt really good. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. You know, this is way faster. I'm doing way better than I thought I was going to. And then October came and it was really hot. It was just really tough to climb Mm -hmm. on that route in like plus 28, plus 30 degrees not a lot of wind and I didn't do very well at all in October actually and then in November the temps went down and I started to get really close and I thought I was going to do it and then I didn't (laughs) that was it I didn't do it and then I left and I was like oh my gosh I can't believe it yeah and then and of course the, the thing is is that as you know I've been totally open on social media about what's going on you know I've been um just kind of keeping people in or letting people into the journey which is something that most climbers don't do you know and it's something that I chose to do because I felt like you know I've got nothing to hide here Mm -hmm. and it's I'll share the journey with people and they can come along with it if they want to you know Mm -hmm. and and it is what it is you know and I mean, I did feel quite vulnerable doing that, but then I was okay with that because I didn't have anything to hide really. And it was just part of the process and part of the story. And I'm just like, well, 
this is what's happening and and you know here you go so, yeah. yeah did you find it's added pressure though that's been harder to manage or not mm. yeah probably probably a little bit actually mm. Yeah. yeah, and what's that yeah. felt like? Mm. Mm. I think, so for example, the added pressure was things like if I had a day off and I was planning to climb the next day, maybe I'd said on social media, well, I've had a day off, I'm going to climb tomorrow, and then I'd wake up the next day and I'd feel like I wasn't rested. And I'd be like, you know what? Mm. I'm actually going to have another day off. I'm not going to climb today. So then what I'd have to do, or in my mind, I then had to kind of tell people about that or let them know that I wasn't going to climb that day. Because a lot of people were sending me messages like going, Tim, what's happening? You know, what happened? Did you do it? Did you try it? You know, and what you might not be aware of is that although people were commenting on social media or commenting on Instagram, they were also sending me personal messages right like like they were like you know thanks so much for like taking us on this journey and you know that what I realized and it that it really helped me a lot actually was that because I was being really open with people and sharing the journey with them a lot of people were finding it incredibly helpful Mm. with their own climbing and their own journeys and they were Mm. They were, I got so many messages from people saying, wow, this is really helping me out a lot. I'm so happy that you're letting us, you know, you're being open about this because, you know, I'm in a really similar situation when we're climbing and I'm just having a really tough time. And seeing how you're dealing with what's going on is just like, it's really inspiring. And it's just helping me with my own projects and it's getting me really motivated to try and keep trying it you know so yeah that's cool yeah Mm -hmm. I guess you know what you're really kind of famous for is sort of like being mega psyched (laughs) um (laughs) you know part of that's like always being really positive right Mm -hmm. throughout this process with Erevea have have you felt like that positivity has been tested and if so like how have you managed it (laughs) (laughs) oh man it's been um has the positivity been tested? I mean, there were there were days on Aravea when I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have I'd have two rest days and I felt amazing. And I'd warm up and I felt I literally felt like Superman, you know. And I'm like, wow, I feel so good. And the conditions would be amazing. And I slept really well. And I was just everything was perfect and I think in fact I think one day I started putting out these like positive affirmations on my social media and I was like you know just putting it out there like why not you know because I was like it was quite an interesting experiment actually like so for yeah so for example I'd say this is the best day of my life everything always works out way better than I could possibly have planned it to you know, which is really powerful. I mean, if if you say that, if you really say that and you try and believe what you're saying, it's amazing how it affects your your psyche, actually. And it's something that I'd I'd got this off a chap called uh, a buddy of mine, Reed McCadden. And we were doing uh, many years ago, we we uh, we actually climbed the path 
together on the same day on his birthday. And we were we were saying these in the morning that we did the route. And um, one of the reasons why I did it is because of the way that it changed the way that I feel. Like if you're a bit nervous, if you say a positive affirmation like this, like it can get you really excited, uh, which might not be the best thing to do, but it it definitely releases chemicals in your body, which if that, that are not there unless you do it. But anyway, going back to the stories, uh, yeah, this this one day that I was warming up, I just felt so good. Like, and I set off on the climb and I, you know, I'm following, I'm practicing a lot of things that you talk about. Um, you were definitely a key influence to my mindset when I was climbing Aravea. And a number of other people had also introduced concepts which were very similar to you in the respect that you, you know, focusing on your breathing, focus on the move, be present, feel how the hold is. Don't think about the outcome. You know, you're not, it's not about the top and achieving it and all that sort of stuff. It's literally, how does that hold feel? Mm-hmm. And then how does the next hold feel, you know, and really mm-hmm. focusing on my breathing mm-hmm. and letting go of the outcome and, um, and, and yeah, just focusing on, on the moment. And I was, I really felt like I was, I was doing the right thing. You know, I was like in the moment, the way that I was supposed to be. And anyway, the climbing was going really, really well. And I just, I was trying to stay away from those feelings of, oh, wow, that was really easy. You know, when you do a move and you've done it like hundreds of times, but it feels much easier that day because Mm. you feel really fresh. And I found that in the past, when I would get into that mind state where you're like, oh, wow, that feels really easy. I'm really strong today. And then I start judging how I'm climbing. And then that's when you like make a mistake and and blow it. Yeah, because I think this is what people don't realize about because positive affirmations and positive self-work talk are great on the ground. But when Mm -hmm. you're climbing, you Mm -hmm. don't, even if you're, because this happens all the time. And I have a really classic personal example I won't use, but basically, you know, when you get near the top of a route and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, It's positive. But it's still yeah. distracting because yeah. you're not thinking yeah. about the move in that moment. Yeah. And that's when you lose tension and your foot pops or you don't mm-hmm. read a move correctly or something like that. So mm-hmm. it, you're totally right that like even when you feel good, you kind of don't want your brain to go there because it's still yeah. distracting and taking your attention away from the climbing. Yeah. Yeah. Just going back to the the question that you asked earlier on about, you know, was my was my positivity tested? Basically, there were a bunch of days or there were a bunch of attempts where I was climbing really well and I felt really, really good. And then something would happen and I'd fall off. And I'm just like, what? And what was that? What were those things? Were they controllable? Well, the first, well, no, one of them wasn't at all. No, like I was setting up for the upper crux, for example, and I had the undercut like this. And I was just about to reach up and get the the, the finishing hold of the upper crux and my flipping left hand just flew out of the undercut and I was just like what and I felt super solid and I just goes like well what's that all about you know I don't I totally don't understand why that happened you know I didn't do anything wrong I was focusing on the move I wasn't thinking about the next bit I was just there and then all of a sudden it would just come I just fell off I was like what 
And um, and then that's one of your two goals used up, mm. you know. And then on your next mm. goal, you're a bit bit tired, and you know, I'll get I'll get yeah. to the same move, but I'm tired, and then I fall off because I'm tired, and then that's mm. that day gone. Then, and I'm yeah. just like, come on, you know. And that you've had your two days off, you've got really good skin, the conditions are amazing, everything's everything's amazing, you know. It's just all totally lined up, and then. And then your hand slips off, you know, and um, anyway, and so, yeah, I definitely found that quite tough. And there was like, mm. I was just like, well, you know, I, I was trying to stay away from the fact that, you know, that's unfair. That shouldn't have happened, you know, because mm. I, you know, I, I totally understand that that's not going to help you at all. You can't change the past mm. and, you know, things happen that you're not in control of. Mm. Yeah, then I'd got above the crux. And I really wanted to focus on the upper bit, you know, because that's where the meat and the potatoes is, so to speak. And then I'd take a couple of days off and then I'd spend the whole day falling off the lower crux. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. why is that happening? You know, because I know mm-hmm. I can do the lower crux. And I'd fo- I actually fell off the lower crux for two days in a row after I'd got through it. And I yeah. should be falling off the top bit. And I was like, oh, my God, I just wasted two days of resting, two days of climbing, and now I'm going to have another two days off. And that's like a week. Mm. Just And like, and, and um, interestingly, we had some drone footage of that, of me falling off the move. And I looked at the footage and it was absolutely the catalyst for me to then to understand why I was falling off it. And as soon as I saw the footage, I was like, Tim, what are you doing? Like, why... Why are you doing that? You should be doing this instead. And as soon as I'd seen that footage, the next time I went and tried the crux, I did it. And Were you then just after, doing a small piece of beta wrong? Um, it was to do with momentum. Right. So okay. it's a really, a really subtle thing where I had I had a pinch here and another one. And the difference, like when I was falling off the move, what I was doing was I was quite close into the wall. And I was letting go and reaching up for this slopey potato thing. I was starting really close to the wall. So I'd then reach up and try and get it. And what I, w- what I realized what I was supposed to be doing is actually instead of starting close to the wall, I straighten my arms and then I do the move by pulling in and then reaching up and getting the potato. So that would like double the amount of time that I had to get the potato because I had forward momentum coming into the wall. Mm -hmm. It's really steep, you see. So if you imagine if you're starting off with your arms bent and you reach up, you're kind of falling out. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you straighten your arms and then you pull in and get Mm -hmm. the potato, you've got, you're moving into the hold and it gives you more time to get it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I realized that, I basically got the potato every go apart from one. I just fumbled it on one go mm-hmm. and it meant that after that I got past the crux on every go which mm-hmm. meant that I was then you know working on the upper crux which is like you know what you need to get through to then stand a chance of doing the route but I'd wasted or well I'd basically lost a lot of time by yeah. not knowing that and like falling off the crux like for a, a long long time actually and therefore um it just meant that I had less goes on the upper section I suppose which is what I really needed to do to be able to do the climb and then I ran out of time so yeah 
Yeah. Did you ever get to that point that's really annoying in a project where it stops becoming fun and you just kind of want it to get it done? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When did that point, when did you cross that point? (laughs) Oh, man. Like, I mean, I've just been, I basically went to Spain on the 19th of September. And then on the 25th or the 26th of September, I got to the 17th bolt, which was my third day on the route. And then, so that's at the end of September. And it was a north wind and it was cold. I was wearing trousers and it was amazing. And then after that, I went to England until the 10th of October. And then I came back to Spain on the 10th. And for the whole of the next three weeks, it was really, really hot. And I just couldn't get through the crux at all. And I, you know, my fingers were greasy and um, I couldn't chalk up on the crux section because I just couldn't do it, basically. And the chalk would come off my fingers. And I was just like, that's when it started. That's when I was just like, oh, man, I just... I just want to get to the top bit again, you know, and I couldn't get through the crux and it was really hot. And I knew that the conditions weren't that great. And I was like, it doesn't matter, mate, just go for it anyway, because it's going to help you out. You're going to get fitter. And, you know, when the conditions get good, it'll you'll have a better chance of being able to get through all this. But it was just really, really hot and I wasn't able to get through it. And so for all of that time, you know, all of October, I felt like that. And then then when I got into November and it started to get cool and I still was falling off the crux. And then that's when I saw the video mm. footage that I just talked to you about. And then, and then I kind of changed my body position and then I started to get through it. Genuinely was like, I just thought I was going to do it. I really, really thought I was going to do it. I felt so good and I felt so ready. And I just was like, the other thing was with Angelo too is that Angelo and I have been climbing on the route since since we started in 2017. And I'd always done better than him, you know, I was always closer to doing the route. And on this trip, it was the same, you know, like I was doing really, really well really early on. And he was like, mate, you're going to do it really soon. And then right towards the end, he started getting through the crux more than I did. And um and then he started getting up to the top wall more consistently, more consistently than me. And then he did it. Mm. And that was, was that? wild. That was, do you know what, Hazel? Like, that is something that I had no clue would ever happen to me in my climbing life, right? I, I was holding his ropes as he was climbing up to the top and I couldn't believe he was actually doing it. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to do it. And I was so happy and so excited. And I was just like, when he got to the top, I just totally burst into tears. Oh. Like I was <laughs> sobbing. Like I was crying, like oh. uncontrollably for like three or four minutes. I could, I was just like completely overwhelmed. Like, and I was, oh. it was really, I wasn't expecting it at all. And I never mm. thought anything like that would ever happen with sport climbing or even with climbing. Like I've never mm. cried ever in my <laughs> climbing life. Honestly, I just I mean, don't think I have. I think that's a, such you know? an interesting story for like what, how projecting really exposes our vulnerabilities and like mm-hmm. really tests our mindset. 
because like you've done so many scary difficult challenging things in your career (laughs) and that's the first time you've ever cried I mean yeah I've cried loads in my climbing life have you have you yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I mean not loads but like especially when I was a kid I cried up almost every route I ever climbed (laughs) did you yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, you started you climbing a lot earlier than me, though. Yeah. yeah. I didn't start climbing until I was 15. And I think also, but being a young, sort of 15 year old boy, not you know, to I, cry. you're supposed to be tough, right? You don't cry. You know, I think you're now allowed to cry now. <laughs> yeah. Now that 2022, I'm 2022. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, how, how did you, how did you kind of manage those setbacks, you know, and like, and the like the feeling negative and feeling like, oh, I just want to have it done. You know, because these are the things that everyone deals with in the project, right? Like it's really fun at the start. And then there comes this point where yeah. you're like, I just want to get this thing done. You know, how did you manage yeah. to stay positive and focused through that? Yeah, cool. Good question. What I did was I stayed in the present and like, you know, you just you just push on basically because you can't change what's happened in the past. And if you think about things that have happened in the past and they, they're like weighing you down in your present, you're better off just letting go. Because if you're thinking about things, if you're focusing your energy and attention on something that's happened in the past that you can't change, you, you're just wasting your time, you know, and you're wasting your energy. And so I think being able to let go of just it's gone it's done it's in the past you can't do anything about it but what can you do right now that's going to help you out on your next go and focus on that because I find that that's really powerful if you focus your attention on things that you can't change then you're just wasting your energy so try and try and leave that behind and focus on what you could do right now. And some of the things that I was doing that would really help me was um, listening to music, maybe in the evening I'd like watch a film, you know, and that would allow me to go to sleep without thinking about the moves a little bit. Mm -hmm. Also, I got into meditating. Meditating really helped me big time. I got this app called Balance and I started Mm -hmm. using that and that really helped me to be present and focus on my breathing. So I was doing a lot of breathing and a lot of meditating and stretching. And I mean, I wasn't drinking any alcohol and I was I was eating really healthily. Yeah, trying to go to bed early as well, you know, that really helps. I found that if I went to bed late, I didn't sleep very well. Whereas if I went to bed at like 10, 10.30, then I, I slept way better. Hey, Rocco. Hey. You're, you're, do you want to say hi to Hazel? We're doing a podcast. You're you're in the video there. Do you want to come and hang out? He's like, God, where do we go in the pool? Yeah, sorry, I'm taking up your your no, holiday no, no, it's time. Okay. It's, it's, it's all good. I've actually got a meeting in 25 minutes as well. So yeah, I found that those things really helped a lot. Also, running, like. I was kind of advised not to run, but I found going running was really good for my mental state. And I've I just been outside was really, really helpful. And also going cold water, swimming too. That was really mm. good too. I went swimming quite a lot, actually, especially after climbing. Like, uh, and some days it was in, towards the end of the trip, it was cold. It was really cold. Yeah. <laughs> like it'd be... It'd be like 12 degrees with a north yeah. wind 
And then I'd come back and it'd be dark. And then I'd jump in the river and swim for like five or six minutes. And the water was like 11 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. And also having cold showers. I was having, so I I wouldn't go cold water swimming before climbing. Mm -hmm. I'd do it afterwards. But what I would do in the morning is I'd have a cold shower for like 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. And being, having a quick shower for 60 seconds with cold water, it doesn't make your skin go all soft, but it means you can have a wash and it just heightens your senses and, you know, switches mm. you on. I'm trying to think if I can give you any more tips from that or give any, the did you, did people you find, that are listening. Because I think, you know, a lot of people, especially people listening to this podcast, know that you kind of want to be present when you're climbing. But um, for me, I feel like with the projecting process, it's like you're in it day and night. You know, like you might watch oh, yeah. a film and you might feel like like you're getting a bit of a rest from it, but like mm-hmm. everything you do is directed towards that project. Mm-hmm. Like what you eat, mm-hmm. like like just what you said, like how you wash. You don't want your skin to go too soft. Like, mm-hmm. you're, like you're just trying to keep your body like in this perpetual optimal state. And like that's yeah. tiring and it's mm-hmm. a bit anxiety inducing. So you also don't want to be OCD about it because... Mm-hmm that you don't want that to affect your mental state and so like I feel like it's important you know I guess a lot of people are like so over the top thinking about their physical state within a project but not necessarily thinking about their mental state as well and it sounds like you you really were thinking about your mental state through it oh yeah so it sounds like you know when you say oh you had to stay present it was also kind of off the rock as well so it's really interesting hearing hearing about what you were doing. I guess just my final question is, what's what's next in the story? Are you going to go back or not? <laughs> what's next? Well, because I do lots of different types of climbing, my next focus is uh, actually to go to Helmkin Falls in Canada. So I'm getting I'm going to ice climbing mode. So uh, I'm, there's a full crew going to Helmkin Falls at the end of January. And gonna go there with Gresham and nice. uh, Emma Powell, and like we're gonna do a Brit Rock show there. Actually, oh, we're cool. gonna do nice. Alice Lee's coming as well, um, and a bunch of other people are gonna to come too. So, yeah, Helm- I love Helmkin Falls. It's so amazing. If you don't know what Helmkin Falls is, have it do a search on the internet for it. Ice climbing at Helmkin Falls. H E L M C K E N Falls in Canada. Is this? totally where the spray on route is right yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. it's like amazing ice cave that's 500 foot high and it's just absolutely amazing basically so i'm I'm training for that but yeah i'm gonna (laughs) i want to go back to spain i want to do why did you look over there when you said that (laughs) (laughs) because i haven't had this conversation with my wife <laughs> is she like over there like what <laughs> no no i mean she knows i mean i've been pretty open on instagram about the fact that i'm gonna go back and do okay, it but yeah. it's the the thing is is that you know it's not just a matter of going there and doing it you know mm. i need to make sure that someone's looking after rocco and that yeah. you know if katie's working full-time in the city then i can't go to spain basically so it really depends on what she's doing and whether she's working from home. And um, because the, like this autumn, I was able to go to Spain for that long purely because Katie was running her own her interior design business from home. 
and we lived next to Rocco School, so it meant that Rocco could go to and from yeah. school. And it, from a parenting perspective, it was manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that situation changes, then I'm not going to be able to go back to Spain unless I take Rocco with me, and then that then I'll have to hold homeschool him and all that sort of stuff. So I mean, there's different different things going on there. So yeah, I really want to go back. I'd, my sort of goal is I'm going to maintain my rock climbing training over the next three months. So that I'm in a position that I can have another go in, in the spring. spring. When, oh, cool. Yeah, nice. When the, you know, when the conditions are good. So we'll just see whether I can manage that with the family and, yeah. um, you know, work and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we'll see. Cool. Yeah, That'd be yeah. great. All right. Well, maybe yeah. we need to do a part yeah. two. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, one, one last thing that we haven't talked about, which is something that um, that I know you know about and also Mike Weeks as well, is uh, what was I thinking about when I was on the route? And I was saying to myself that I am a spider monkey. Yeah, I heard this. Yeah. Is this your mantra? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's something that I got from Mike because he was like, oh, you've got to, when you climb, you're climbing like what? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you when you're climbing? And mm-hmm. what I noticed was when I realized that if, like, for, for example, a spider monkey, the reason why I thought about a spider monkey is because um, the way that spider monkeys climb is that they're, they're really fast and they're light and they're really flexible and they fly around the trees. And they're like, of all the sort of monkeys that you see climbing around, the spider monkey is the most nimble <laughs> and they never fall, you know? And I thought, <laughs> I'm a spider monkey. Like, and like, I'm a spider monkey. I'm a spider monkey. I'm a spider monkey. And I noticed that when I said that to myself, I just felt like, light and agile and quick and precise Mm and you know I felt rather than thinking how do I feel you know am I going to do it yeah how does that feel do I feel good am I tired am I nervous am I like this I'm I'm a spider monkey I'm a spider monkey I'm a spider monkey Mm -hmm. how does that hold feel you you see what I mean Mm -hmm. and it, it, it changes your thought your internal dialogue to something which is more helpful I guess yeah another thing Another thing that Mike said to me as well is the way to switch off your internal dialogue is by dropping your tongue. Mm, relaxing your draw, jaw. Well, relaxing your tongue, jaw tongue is dropping. one thing. Both yeah, but tongue, tongue dropping is like slightly different. So, for example, one thing I noticed was that my internal dialogue, like my my thinking process, whenever I was talking to myself or my thought process was in in motion my tongue was always raised mm. and if I would consciously thought about dropping my tongue it switches off my thought process or my internal dialogue but one of the challenges I had with that was that what am I thinking about am I thinking about I'm a spider monkey or am I thinking about the hold or am I thinking about dropping my tongue you know, and it's like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> what's, what's, what am I supposed to be doing here? You know what I mean? And it, yeah, uh, I, I mean, like, I think yeah. it's it's nice to, um, <laughs> like, uh, in sports psychology, they use like these cues that like switch on, switch off. And so either you're thinking or you're climbing, and climbing is a doing, thinking is a thinking. Mm-hmm. 
mantras are a bit different because it's almost like they become so automatic that they're more like cues themselves rather than think thinking processes. But I use the mantra, let the body climb, because it helps mm. me trust my body and not my thinking mind, which is usually distracting. But mm. I usually do that in moments of uncertainty, like when I'm not in flow. Mm-hmm. I'll like do something like a really like audible outward breath, like like cue that like I'm climbing now when I'm not managing. Because I guess, you know, like dropping tongue, saying a mantra, doing this, doing that, it's like managing your experience. You're not mm-hmm. in your experience and you want to be in your experience a bit like you are when you're base jumping or something. So for me, then when I'm in that experience, it's more about just being completely connected to my senses. It's interesting what you're saying about closing your eyes because I use little mini visual anchors so like really looking at the next hold like exactly where my index finger needs to go or like really zooming into what a foothold looks like and it's quite calming and focusing than kind of like Mm -hmm. we tend to like look up to everything so yeah it's quite cool when you start playing around with those things and like I think what's really interesting about your story is like yeah you didn't do the route but how much stuff did you learn in that Mm -hmm. journey I mean, mm-hmm. loads of stuff you would never have learned from doing like the uh, one scary climb or something, you know, like yeah. sticking with something and like staying at it. It just brings up so many challenges that you don't face when it, you do like one scary route or something. Yeah. So it's weird. Yeah. It's like you think of sport climbing as like the psychologically easy form of climbing, but it's just not, is it, when you take on a big project? Well, I tell you what, Hazel, like the the reaction that I had when Angelo climbed Erevea, like that, the, I think the reason why I really, really want to do Erevea, I want to go back and have another go, is because I want to know what the experience is going to be like when I get to the top. Yeah, that's cool. There's a good it, reason to do it. Yeah. You know, if I burst, I mean, if I got that emotional, feeling him which is something that's never happened to me before what is that going to feel like when I get to the top like honestly because I I mean I'd thought about this in fact I in two two times I was driving to the airport and I suddenly well I was just thinking about as you do when you you know doing these projects uh, my mind wandered and I was as I was driving down the road I imagined what it was going to be like to clip the chains. And as soon as I thought about that thought, like I could feel myself welling up. And I was like, oh my God. And I just almost start crying. And I was just like, whoa, that's pretty <laughs> intense. <laughs> and they, all it was was a thought. But then when Angelo did it and I belayed him, and I mean, the, I put, I mean, I posted that video of, of, mm. of, of you know giving him a hug and stuff but what I, I didn't post was the like the two or three minutes before he mm. got to the ground and I was just in I couldn't even speak I honestly couldn't even talk I was just like <laughs> and I, it was I was like I just couldn't believe it I couldn't believe how it affected me you know and it it I wonder it'd be fascinating to look into the the reason why I 
was so emotional, whether it was from like being a kid at school where, you know, maybe he did it before me, or maybe it was because I was really happy for him, or maybe it was because I really wanted what he had mm-hmm. and he got it and I didn't. And maybe it was like, imagine, you know, when you're like three or something and someone else gets a toy that you want and you don't have it and then you have a tantrum, you know, mm-hmm. and you cry because that's what you you want it. You want the object, but you don't have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know whether it was that or I don't know what it was, but what I do know is it was like full on and it was it hit me really hard. And I was, I mean, I was psyched. I was so flipping elated for him you know like mm-hmm. I've had I've belayed people before where you're trying to do a route before them and you're like oh I really hope I get it before that person mm-hmm. this was different this was really yeah, different yeah. I mean we we are just I mean we're devoted I mean it was like day 80 or something for Angelo mm-hmm. I mean you know we really had been trying for a long 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 time you know, and it, all of a sudden he did it. And it was like, yeah, it was yeah, that's amazing. Pretty intense. That's pretty intense. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Well, <laughs> I guess you got to go, but thanks for sharing the story. <laughs> Which has, uh, yeah. isn't, doesn't have an ending yet, but no. Um, no. is a very inspiring story nonetheless. And I think, you know, I think that's the coolest part about it. Like, just how positive you've stayed and and how dedicated and how also how focused on the psychological side of it you are Mm -hmm. um because a lot of people miss that part and it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of the main thing really you know like Mm -hmm. obviously you need to be fit enough and you need to be strong enough but it's the thing that lets you down really isn't at the end of the day and it's the thing can that can make the difference you know where your attention is in the moment is is the kind of the crux for projecting because it's so yeah. easy to be distracted when you want something yeah. so much yeah do you know yeah. I, I I really feel like I did everything right I mean yeah maybe maybe I didn't maybe there was something I didn't do right but I really feel like I did everything right I couldn't have done anything better really yeah. it was purely like a numbers thing you know uh, mm-hmm. like if I was able to stay there a bit longer maybe that would have helped if the conditions had been a bit better in October maybe that would have helped, you know, but mm-hmm. I, did, I, I did, I was doing everything right, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, um, and it's, the fact is that it's right on the edge of my limit. That's the bottom yeah. line. You know, I've, I've only done one C and one C plus, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I've really put it out. I've put it out as far as I could possibly put mm-hmm. it. And that's why I haven't done it is because it's right out there, you know, and for sure, I could have tried something easier and I probably would have done it already. Mm-hmm. And maybe a lot of people that aren't prepared to put it as far away as that mm-hmm. because they know the chances of doing it are so low, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been a, an amazing journey. And I think the saving grace for me, just to like wrap this up, is that even though I haven't done it, because I took so many people along on the journey, I've had so many messages from people just saying, oh, thanks so much. Mm-hmm. It's really helped me a lot with my climbing. And mm-hmm. and that in its own right, is, it makes it worthwhile and it makes it a success, you know, which is mm-hmm. um, which helps me out a lot, actually. And it, and it makes it less of a like, well, you didn't do it, you know, and because it's helped a lot of people out in the process. So, 
Yeah, yeah. that's good. And you've learned loads too, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been great. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> Thank, thanks for sharing that and thanks for coming on the podcast and yeah, all the best with your winter plans. Thanks very much, Hazel. Yeah, nice to see you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you're not already, think about becoming a podcast community member. For $8 a month, you get access to all of our bonus content, which is slowly growing and growing. You also get to suggest future guests and ask them questions and also attend our live events. If you would like access to more mental training content and to our coaches and to our live events, you can become a full Strong Mind community member and you can find information about that at strongmindclimbing.com and then go to the community page. What's really cool about our community is that we are having really great conversations about psychology in climbing. We're connecting like-minded people, sharing experiences, and I think one of the biggest benefits is that every month we focus on a particular topic in mental training and psychology, and we really explore it with depth through live events, discussions, workshops, and pop-up sessions with expert coaches. Psychology is one of the toughest areas of climbing, and life and we often don't have the skills knowledge and even the language to discuss and learn about our own psychologies so with this community we're really hoping that it's the connections that we build between one another and the conversations and the discussions that we're having whether that's between members between members and coaches or between professional climbers or expert coaches that we bring in from time to time to discuss particular areas of mental training and psychology so if it sounds like something that you could benefit from either because you're interested in psychology or because you'd like to build a stronger mind for climbing and for life uh, please visit strongmindclimbing.com and head to our community area Thanks so much for your time and attention and I really hope you enjoy the rest of your day.